too big of a theme, Brother Anthony, to cover in one lesson. We actually did a series on this in my uh, Tuesday morning classes. We did a three-part series a while back. I did a, a Tuesday night Bible study at my house with a dozen, 15 people a few weeks ago on this. But I promise you, if you were at those, it's not just going to be a repeat of all the same stuff. There will be some other stuff. Some will pick back up, but other things we're going to bring in. But if we could just go to the Word of God and read our Scripture text to launch off, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to read verses 9 and 10, and then verses 14 through 16. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the cap the caption, captain, I'm sorry, of their salvation perfect through suffering. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. That is one of my favorite New Testament passages of Scripture, and it says so much. How many understand tonight that Jesus Christ was not just God, not just divine, but that he was also genuinely human in every aspect? He wasn't just a body embodied by God, but he was genuinely a man with a human nature, emotions, personality, etc. And he was just as much man as he was God. He was both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He was humanity and divinity all merged together in some mysterious way. Genuinely human and genuinely God. As a man, he was the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He was God's agent. He was God's anointed one, the Messiah. He was the promised seed of the woman. And it had to be this way because God had said in the beginning that he was going to crush Satan's head through the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now we know when this was. This was right after the fall of man, Adam and Eve, into sin. And God came on, and God pronounced a curse on the serpent. And God said, if I can paraphrase, you use the woman to bring about evil, but I'm going to use her to bring about good. I'm going to use the seed of the woman to bring about the crushing of your head. I'm going to bring about your destruction through her seed. You see, God reversed it and turned it around on the devil. And not only that, 
But just as you use the woman to bring sin into the world with all of its death and pain and destruction, I'm going to use the seed of the woman to bring about mankind's salvation and redemption. I'm going to use her seed to bring about everlasting peace, joy, and righteousness. And I'm going to use her seed to fix and to restore everything that you've messed up. I'm going to use her seed to bring about the restitution and the restoration of all things. And he's going to bring about everlasting life for my people. And they're going to have the right to the tree of life. So I'm teaching, preaching, however it comes out tonight, on the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The victory of the Lord focusing on his victory over death, Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, and all the forces of the enemy. And then finishing up with what does all of this mean for us? So let's, let's get into it. I read a book a few years ago that really helped me uh, being in my understanding of the victory of the Lord over death and the realm or the, the abode of the dead and Satan and his kingdom. And in the book, the author solidified a lot of things I was already, Brother Nick, getting and understanding from my reading in the scripture, but it really helped me in solidifying and gaining a clear understanding of the things I'm going to talk to you about tonight. The author is actually, it's one of our UPC authors, it's Brother David Norris. He's been one of the leaders at Urshan Bible College. He's honestly with Brother David Bernard, Brother Dan Seagraves. He's probably one of the leading three theologians in the UPC. But he wrote a book called Life, Death, and the End of the World. And uh, so I asked a question tonight, what is death? And, and what, what was, what is, what was, what is the place of the dead? So understand death, and all this is going to connect back to the victory that our Lord's won for us. And I hope it will open your understanding and in the end give you a greater faith and courage uh, to know the victory we have over our enemy. But Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, if you would. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Notice man had a body that was formed from the dust of the ground. And then God breathed into that lifeless body. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So with man, there is the visible and the invisible. There is the body and the soul and the spirit. And death is not the end of either our souls or our bodies. Now, when a man dies, the Bible says his spirit leaves the body. His spirit goes back to God who gave it. It leaves the body. And the body is buried and goes back to the dust from which it came. The body dies and goes to sleep. But the inner part of man, the consciousness, continues to exist. That's the soul of man. And we know that when Christians depart from the body... We know it means to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 and 8. <clears throat> we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to, be, and to be present with the Lord. So we know from many scriptures, Paul talking here, that when we die as a Christian, we go into the presence of the Lord. But it wasn't 
always that way before the cross. According to most theologians, and it's implied in the scripture, there was a holding place. And in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for that was Sheol. Sheol. Sheol is also the same thing as saying in the Greek, Hades. It's the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. Don't confuse it with the lake of fire. That comes later. But there was this holding place, Sheol. And the ancient Hebrews believed it was in the heart of the earth. And, and, and the Bible does. When it refers to Sheol, it's always going down. It's never you're going up to Sheol. You go up to glory. You go up to heaven. But when it spoke about Sheol, Brother Jared, it would talk about descending going down. In fact, it says Jesus himself, he descended first before he ascended to heaven. He descended first into the lower parts of the earth. So there was this holding place, Sheol, and before the cross, the righteous and the unrighteous were in Sheol. The righteous were comforted in Abraham's bosom. The unrighteous were in a place of punishment. Jesus gave us a story of two men who had died under the old covenant before the cross it was a story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was comforted in Abraham's bosom, but the sinful, wicked rich man, it was not so. He was not comforted, but was in torment. Now, this all changed after Calvary, and there was the biggest jailbreak in history, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want to answer a question. Sister Kim gave me several questions related to some of this, because we had these classes on Tuesday, and some of the young people gave her some questions and one of them had to do with, are people recognizable in the afterlife? And I've heard a few people in my lifetime say, no, they don't believe you're going to be able to recognize each other. And I'll tell you, that's absolutely contrary to the Word of God. I want to give you an example first in the Old Testament. And I know this is kind of a weird story, and I always had a little trouble with this story myself. But in 1 Samuel chapter 28, the prophet Samuel had died, and Saul was in trouble. It was the day before his death, actually. He was in trouble, and the Philistines were after him. And Saul, in desperation, he went to a witch, a necro, uh, somebody that tries to call people from the dead. And in this instance, now, witches can't truly call people from the dead. I'll make that very clear. This, they can't do that. Demons personify. But in this instance, God did bring Samuel up. And when Samuel came up, the witch recognized him, and she was terrified, and Saul recognized him. And he told, and he was, the point is here that Samuel was recognizable, and he told Saul that tomorrow you and your sons will be here with me. Here is where, where Sheol, the lower parts of the earth. Another example of people being recognizable in the kingdom of God, and when we get to the glory world, Jesus spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being recognizable in the kingdom of God, that people could recognize them. St. Luke 13, if you could read there, brother. <clears throat> there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus here was talking to Jews who did not believe in him, and he said, your heart is going to be grieved when you look and you see into the kingdom and you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets. He said, you're going to recognize them. 
you're going to recognize your loved ones who have went on. Of Abraham's recognizable, and Jacob and Isaac are recognizable. Brother Steve Hensley's going to be recognizable. Pastor Nick Wilson's going to be recognizable. Sister Gail Skelton's going to be recognizable. We are, don't worry about whether or not you're going to be able to recognize your loved ones. You are, we will be. People keep their identifiable existence in the afterlife. So, another thing about sleep. Some people say the soul goes to sleep. That, that's not true either. When the Bible refers to sleep, it refers to our bodies. Our soul keeps living on. Our soul's consciousness. When you die, you don't, your consciousness doesn't go out. You, you, if you're a Christian, you go into paradise. Lazarus and the rich man in the story, they had their conscience. They had their mind. <clears throat> they knew where they were. Lazarus knew he was comforted. The rich man knew he was in a place of discomfort. So, so let's go back and read our text scripture, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I'm going somewhere with all this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them through who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now I want you to key on, uh, they could put that last verse back up there for just a second, that verse uh, 15, if you could key on that for a minute. It says that he came, of course, destroy the one who had power of death, the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The writer of the book of Hebrews here describes for us here the general mindset of the Old Testament declaring that through the fear of death, they were all their lifetime subject to bondage. A fear of death existed in the world. Prior to the gospel, prior to Christ, even amongst the people of God, there was a certain fear and mystery and uncertainty when it came to death. Uh, but Christ, through his victory, uh, his victory through his death and resurrection, completely redefined mankind's relationship with the realm of the dead and with death itself. So Jesus entered into death itself through the cross. Now at the cross, surrounding the cross, evil was present. Jesus had said on the evening of the Last Supper, John 14 and 10, I'm sorry, 14 and 30. It's on the board, brother. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. So this is the night. He acknowledged, this is the night of the Last Supper. He acknowledged that evil was present and at work. He also said that the prince of this world, however, is going to be judged, St. John 12 and 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. I'm Arise. sorry. I may have given you the, uh, it says, now is the judgment of this world, and now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So evil was at work, but evil was also going to be judged. It was going to be cast out. It was going to be overcome through what Jesus was going to do on the cross. But evil was present. Evil was there. Leading up to the cross, there was a betrayal of his friend Judas. 
There was a lying witnesses at his trial. There was a condemnation given out by the Roman governor Pilate. And there was a crowd that mocked him at the cross, hurling false accusations in his face. And there he was at the cross. In his weakness and shame, they cast off his clothes. And the soldiers gambled for his clothing. At the cross, I'm here to tell you tonight, that at the cross, Brother Anthony, Jesus did not look like a champion. At the cross, Jesus did not look like a champion. That did not look like a victorious event going forth. In fact, he looked like a victim. He looked like a victim. But there are times in life when things are not as they appear. And you can remember that and apply that to a whole lot of things right there. He may have looked like, and he was to a degree a victim, but even though you could not tell by looking, he was about to win the greatest victory ever won for mankind. And I submit to you tonight that not only did Jesus look like a victim, he felt like a victim as well. We know that. Because he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken means deserted. In truth, he was not forsaken or deserted, but he felt the things he was going through. He felt the shame. He felt the victimhood. He felt the victim of violence. He felt the pain. <clears throat> But he wasn't forsaken, but at that moment, he felt the feeling of being forsaken, even though in truth, he was not. And there are times in life when your feelings may make you feel like God has deserted you, but you are never, ever alone. He is with us always, even to the end of the world even when you may feel forsaken and deserted. How many has ever been there before? <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. There's been a few times when I was like, God, you seem like you're a billion miles away. And I almost feel like I've been cast aside and deserted and forsaken. When you know who else felt like that? Jesus. Jesus knew <clears throat> what it was like to feel forsaken. And yes, preceding the greatest victory ever won, Jesus felt shame. He was the recipient of a violent death. and He even felt forsaken at one point on the cross. But it was through his shame, agony, and even weakness in the cruel treatment he received that the greatest victory ever in human history was coming to be. When he died on the cross, his body died. But he did not fall into some sort of sleep or otherwise lose cognition. After that he died, he was on a mission. He had some things to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So Paul tells us here that before he ascended up, what is it but that he also first descended into the lower 
parts of the earth. That's Sheol. That's Hades. That's the abode of the dead. He descended into the abode of the dead, the netherworld. Now, he did not go as a captive, and he wasn't taken hostage. But he went in as a victorious conqueror. And let me tell you this, too. This has really blessed my heart studying this. He went in with a message, with a proclamation. He went in making, heralding some announcements. And he had a message for Satan himself and all his forces. And he had a message for the righteous dead and all who had been held captive for all those years. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Did you get that? It says that that scripture has been one of the most mysterious scriptures in the New Testament for a long time. And it's really kind of light bulb things went off just recently with it. But he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This is talking about after he descended into the lower parts of the earth, into the netherworld, into Sheol. He preached to the spirits. Now the word prison here, in prison, the word prison here is a generic description of the netherworld, of Hades, the place of the dead, the place where departed spirits are kept. Notice it says he preached, but the word here for preached, it, yes, it can mean preached, but it also means proclaimed, declared, made announcements. He went into the lower parts of the earth, and he came announcing and declaring his victory. He marched into Hades, Brother Beecham, declaring his triumphant victory at the cross. He announced and declared his triumphant victory over evil spirits and satanic forces and principalities and powers. He came and announced his victory, declaring his rights as victor to the spoils and fruits of victory. He made proclamation, Sister Maddie. There wasn't any compromise in what he said. He declared he had won, and the game was changing from here forward. Jesus raided the enemy's camp. And furthermore, he announced and declared that he was taking the power and the authority of death and Hades from the devil. Now, we know that in Revelations 1.18, he said, Behold, I am he which was dead, and now I'm alive. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and of, of Hades and of death. He disarmed, he took it away from the enemy. And I also believe he announced that the righteous dead were not going to be held there any longer. He announced that he was ascending to paradise and that he was taking the spirit and souls of the righteous dead with him. And he announced that from here on, death would no longer be a thing to dread or to fear, but that it would be a passageway into paradise for the children of God to be in his presence. It shifted the whole thing about the realm of the dead for the Christian, for the believer. This is the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he won it all for you and for me. He won it all for us. And he preached and he declared his victory to the spirits in prison. Colossians chapter 2. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which 
was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. <coughs> and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Paul said all of our sins, all the rules and regulations that were against us, he took them out of the way, nailing them to the cross. And then when he descended into Sheol, Satan's prison house, he disarmed, he destroyed, he disarmed the principalities and powers. He took away from them the things they used against us. He made a, it says here in this passage, he made a public show of them, a public spectacle of them, a public humiliation before all of hell. He made a public humiliation of the enemy triumphing over them in it. In other words, not only were they soundly defeated, but he rubbed it in their face. He humiliated them. He triumphed over them. And when he ascended up to paradise, now the resurrection was three days later, but we know he went to paradise on that very day, so he must not have been down there very long because he told the thief on the cross, today, not three days from now, but today, you will be with me in paradise. So when he ascended up to paradise, there was the greatest jailbreak the world had ever known. There was such a jailbreak that the Bible declares in Matthew 27, uh, 52-53. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. I believe this is something God did on the surface, just to give a little idea in the land of the living what was going on in a much bigger way in the invisible world, just to kind of show what was happening. There was a jailbreak as Jesus led the Old Testament saints up to paradise. Praise God. So to wrap it all up, what does all this mean for me today? <clears throat> What's all this mean for you? Well, God said in the beginning, I'm going to use the seed of the woman. And my wrap-up's not three minutes on this. It's probably ten, okay? I've still got several pages of notes. But God said in the beginning, I'm going to use the seed of the woman to fix the situation. I'm going to crush the serpent's head through the woman's seed. Jesus came from God, but also from the seed of the woman. Jesus said in St. John, I proceeded forth and came forth from God. But he also came from the seed of the woman. Brother Jared, if you could read our, our text one more time, Hebrews 2, 14, 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part, he of, took the part of the same flesh and blood, the seed of the woman, just like you and I. Read on, brother. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Did you get that? That by entering into death, he would disarm, destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. There are two things in this text scripture. Number one, Jesus partook of flesh and blood to enter death's domain and destroy and disarm the one who had the authority over death. We already read Revelations 1.18. I'm he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Have the keys of hell and death. Number two, the second point from this scripture is before the cross, I touched on this earlier, but before the cross and the resurrection, there was a general, Brother Ben, a general uncertainty about death. The writer of Hebrews here called it. He said there was a fear of death that gripped the people. Jesus came not only to disarm the devil of his authority over death, but Jesus came also to break death's stranglehold on us and to deliver us from being afraid of it. 
Jesus came to set us free from the fear of the consequences of death. A child of God doesn't have to fear the consequences of death because of the blood of the Lamb and the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. It's not God's will for us to fear the consequences of death because death has been changed into a passageway the sting of death isn't there in the same way it used to be. It's been changed into a passageway into the presence of God. No longer is the passageway to Sheol or the underworld, but it's a passageway, a doorway into paradise in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, if you could read that. <clears throat> we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then Luke 23, verse 42 and 43. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that was the thief on the cross. And Jesus told him, Today. Not at the resurrection. Not 2,000 years from now. But today, your soul, your spirit is going to be with me in paradise because of the victory that Jesus has won when we die yes our body our body dies and goes to sleep in the grave but our souls and spirits enter into paradise the presence of the Lord Paul talked about this God knew Paul was going to go through so much brother Nick that he gave him a taste of glory and Paul talked about it in 2nd Corinthians when he said, I knew a man, he's talking about himself, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But he said he was caught up into paradise. And he heard things, saw things. He said that it was impossible for him to even utter or to describe. It was so wonderful. No doubt the Lord gave Paul that, and it strengthened Paul, and it encouraged Paul, and helped him go through the suffering that he would endure. But you and I tonight, we are spirit, soul, and body. The body you can see, but the spirit and soul are is in, invisible. But they're just as much a part of us as the part that we cannot see. And we're not complete with all th without all three. So this is the way it works when we die. <clears throat> when Jesus died, he went to paradise. Three days later, his spirit and soul were reunited with his body. And he was resurrected and given his glorified body. Notice he went to paradise. And then there was a delay and then he had the bodily resurrection where he got his glorified body. We follow in the same pattern. He was the first fruits. It's the same pattern. The first fruits, the pattern sets the stage. There's the early harvest. The first fruits was the early harvest. The later, the big harvest came, came later at a later time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Notice it says he's become, he arose from the dead. He became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man <coughs> came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Did you get that? Every man in his own order. First it was Christ, 
He died, went to paradise, Sister Maddie, and then was resurrected in bodily form and went up to glory. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. So it's Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. He died and went to paradise. Three days later, his spirit and soul reentered his body, and he was resurrected. So it is with us. When we die, we go into paradise to be with the Lord. And it may be 2,000 years for some, and it may be two days for others. But at his coming, our souls are going to be reunited with our bodies, which will be raised up into a glorified body, and then we will be made complete. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 58. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep. That means some of us are going to be living when the Lord comes. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For the corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, the Lord's victory has become our victory. He set this up so that we're victorious in him. If we follow him, we love him, we serve him. It's guaranteed victory for us because he did it all for us. And what did Pastor tell us? That last verse there, and I'm, I'm closing. If you want to stand, Brother Nick will make his way on up, close it out. If you want to stand, we're going to close. But that last verse there, he says, In light of all this, brethren, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Be steadfast. That means be faithful. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What did pastor tell us two weeks ago, Sunday morning? He said, G he preached Matthew 24, and he said, Jesus did not tell us the when. They asked him the when. He didn't tell them. He did say, your certain things are going to happen. Certain things must come to pass. Be not terrified of them and lift up your heads and know that your redemption is drawing nigh. He did not tell us the when, but he did tell them the what. And the what was stay busy till I come. Don't go to sleep. Watch and be prayerful. Stay busy, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you know what, folks? You get born again, it's not hard to go to heaven. You get born again, you get washed in the blood of Jesus. His name gets applied to your life, you get filled with his spirit, and you just simply live for God. 
and the victory that he won on the cross, that victory he won is going to be, it is our victory now, but it's going to, in an even fuller sense, be our victory one day when he returns. God bless you. I've enjoyed sharing this with you. I hope it didn't confuse you and I hope it helped you in your understanding of what all the Lord has for you. Amen. What an incredible Bible study this evening.